And just like that, we're back in your life. You thought we went away. You thought, did Brendan leave? Did he quit? Did he die? What happened to him? What happened to him was life. Okay? Life happened to him. But we're back. We're here now. Two-week hiatus. Longest hiatus in the history of the show. But we had to do it. So, you might say, Brendan, how are you going to reward me for taking two weeks off and leaving me without any scientific education for two weeks? My answer is that today on the podcast, we got the great Dan Hooper. Dr. Dan Hooper. Don't forget the doctor. Don't be disrespectful. He's a senior scientist and the head of the theoretical astrophysics group at Fermilab, the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. He is maybe the first real expert in the particle physics community to come on the show. And I've reached out to several people, but no one's interested. Particle physicists, man, they're hanging out in their own little bubbles. They don't want to talk to me about stuff. Well, joke's on them, because we didn't want any of them anyway. We wanted Dr. Dan Hooper, okay? He's an associate professor in the Department of Astronomy and Physics, Astronomy and Astrophysics, okay? Get it right. Don't get it wrong. At the University of Chicago, he's the author of three books. He's the author of Dark Cosmos and Nature's Blueprint, which is, have already been out for several years, but he's the, also the author of At the Edge of Time, which is available now, today, as of this date. You might say, Brendan, excellent timing. It's almost like I planned it. It's almost like I recorded this a week ago and didn't upload it until the day that his book came out. It's almost as if I did that, okay? Go buy it now, wherever books are sold, Go get it. Amazon.com, link below. Just do it. All right? How many people do you know that publish three books? Be honest. How many? Three books? Really? Everyone has an uncle that writes books, if we're being honest. Everyone has an uncle that writes books. Novels. Romance novels. My wife has an uncle who published a book of poems. He published a book of poems. I don't know who the publisher is, but guess what, guy? Nobody is reading 47 haikus, okay? No one's doing it. Shut it down. No one's reading 47 haikus. It's not happening. All right? I had an uncle that sat on my brother in a swimming pool. Almost killed him. Nothing describes an uncle more than a dude who lives in New Jersey, weighs 364 pounds, and sits on an 11-year-old nephew, his 11-year-old nephew, in a blow-up swimming pool on a 95-degree day with a cold Budweiser in his hand. That's grade A uncle behavior. That's the most uncle shit you'll hear ever. And that's my uncle. Uncle Billy, in fact, is his name. And he's not doing so hot these days. But that's okay, he'll get through it. Listen, you don't sit on your 11-year-old nephew in a swimming pool and almost kill him if you're doing good in your life. It's just not, there's two things, they don't, they're not synonymous with one another. Alright? But Dan Hooper isn't your creepy uncle who sits on his nephews. And he isn't writing haikus. Okay, he's writing about the most mysterious things in the entire universe, the biggest questions in the universe. So we spend a considerable amount of time. This is actually the longest interview I've done in probably 60 episodes. Since episode one, this is probably the longest episode I've done. It's nearly two hours. And we spend a lot of time talking about four primary mysteries. Okay, Dan, in the first chapter of his book, he brings up four mysteries that he considers to be the most important questions that need to be answered in modern day physics. And those questions are the phenomena of dark matter, dark energy, the inflationary period of the early universe, and and the lack of antimatter that we see in the universe. And you might say, Brendan, I don't know what inflation is and I don't know what antimatter is. Okay? Well, you will. You're gonna learn today. 
You gotta learn today. You know what that is? Are you not a fan of comedy? It's Kevin Hart. Okay? He has a great bit where he says that. I'm not stealing it. I give him credit. He told me he could use it. He texted me. All right? We're on a texting basis. He texted me, said, Brendan, it'd be honored if I could be in your podcast. And so he gave me permission to put that in there. So YouTube, if you think you're going to remove it, he gave me permission. Am I lying about that? Yeah, I am. Okay? But it's fine. It doesn't matter. It's all good. It's all good. So please, people, like, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Stitcher, Spotify, wherever, give it five stars, okay? If you don't give it five stars, if you don't give it five stars, you're gonna learn today. You're gonna learn today. You're gonna learn today, all right? You're gonna learn today. So give it five stars. Please subscribe on YouTube, youtube.com slash the state of the universe, all one word. Go on thestateoftheuniverse.com, all one word. If you put spaces, it's because you don't listen to me. When I say all one word, I mean take the words, five words, the state of the universe, five words, take the spaces out of them, don't type the spaces, and just put a dot com at the end. That's what I mean when I say all one word. That's not hard to figure out, but listen, there's some people who just don't understand certain things, like me. I don't I, I don't understand most of the things I encounter in my daily life. I don't understand traffic. I don't understand how people don't know how to use turn lanes. I don't understand a bunch of stuff. Okay, it's a turn lane, you put your turn signal on, you get into the turn lane before you slow down. Then you're in the turn lane after you are out of the normal lane so that you don't slow the people down in the normal lane. It's really, it's simple, okay? Turn signal on, get into the turn lane, you need to anticipate that you have to turn about 500 feet ahead. So you need to get in the turn lane before you have to turn. Don't slam in your brakes and then move into the turn lane and slow traffic down. Turn signal on, get in the turn lane, stop, and then you make your turn. If you slow down traffic because you don't know how to use a turn lane, we have problems with one another. Okay? So please go to the website, thestateoftheuniverse.com, all one word. Join the mailing list. Pretty please. When I'm done reading Dan Hooper's book, which I'm almost there now, almost done, I will be sending it out to someone on the mailing list. So you'll get secondhand book, but you'll like it. Okay? It's a great book, and I encourage you to, to buy it, to read it. It actually is a, a fantastic book. It's a fantastic book on on some more. It's it's a fantastic book on all the scientific concepts, but it's also a fantastic book because it makes you think about the idea of paradigm shifts in science, of the fact that there's probably some information out there that we don't know, and that when we talk, when we do science, we have to start considering that we aren't just tying up loose ends, but in fact, there's probably some underlying theoretical physics that we just don't know. And we talk a lot about that concept in this episode. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram. You know the drill, people. Thank you for tuning in. I love y'all. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Bye-bye. Anyhow, man, it's great to have you here. I appreciate you doing this. I'm excited. Um, I just appreciate the opportunity to kind of promote the new book. And uh, and it sounds like what you're doing is great. So I'm excited to be part of it. Yeah, well, well, it's great to have you. Um, Fermilab is a beautiful place. First off, I'll say that right now. I spent, yeah, I love it I, there. Yeah, I spent some time there. Do you live near? Do you live in Naperville? No, I live in a place called Oak Park, which is right on the edge of Chicago. I see Na- Naperville. I had the best steak of my whole life in Naperville. The greatest really? steak in the world. It was a bison steak. Okay. It was at a place called Ted Montana's. All right, oh, I've not been. God. It was incredible. You should go if you plan. You will have to spend fifty dollars on a steak. Um, right. But it's worth the $50 on the steak. 
It's incredible. Well, this can be the best steak I've ever had. If fifty bucks sounds like a good deal, yeah, it's, it is the best. See, the way you know it's the best steak you ever had is they don't ask you how you want it cooked. That's that's the move, right? They okay. only cook it one way, and the All way right. that they cook it is the way that you get it. Yeah. So they, they don't even offer it. You get it that's medium the right rare. way. Yeah, and you have no choice. There's no cool. there's no option given to you. So anyway, we're not here to talk about steak though. Um, I'm curious about you though, uh, because you're a cosmologist. Not that I'm not curious about people who aren't cosmologists, but the cosmologists I talk to are arguably the most interesting in terms of their backstory. I think that there's always something that happens like early on in your life, something that influences you to want to understand the fundamental start of the universe. Because I'm researching black holes and I'm researching neutron stars and binary neutron stars. And this is cool stuff, but this isn't necessarily like the beginning of the universe. Arguably, the beginning of the universe is way more fundamental than the structure of a black hole. Um, and so, wh- where are you from, Dan? Where, where did it all begin? Yeah, so a lot of my colleagues will tell you about, you know, when they were seven years old, they learned about cosmology and that they knew that's what they wanted to do and they were locked in from that point on. Nothing like that is true for me. I grew up in, you know, uh, the countryside of rural Minnesota, seven miles to the nearest town and town by town, I mean village. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't have any exposure to any of that stuff. I think if I had had some exposure to it, I would have, you know, been pretty enthusiastic about it, but it just never happened. Um, I never even thought I might want to do science until halfway through college or something. But that being said, I was always very interested in big picture ideas. Mm-hmm. What little like philosophy I encountered, I just, you know, swallowed up. Um, you know, when people would pontificate about the meaning of life or the origin of the universe or, you know, even even things like, uh, you know, when I learned about Darwinian evolution for the first time, you know, and just the kind of grandiosity of that and mm-hmm. the sweeping implications. I mean, that sort of stuff has always uh, really resonated with me for as long as I can remember, even though I didn't have a lot of opportunities to encounter that stuff. That's what was your high school like? Because you said you didn't really decide on science until midway through college. Did you have in my high school? I had no exposure to physics. I had no exposure to astronomy. I had no exposure to to actually like real, I'd say physical sciences. You had some bi- biology, but but at a very basic level, some chemistry, but also at a very basic level. So I also didn't really see, outside of reading books, I didn't really see any physics or astronomy until college. Was that an, a similar experience for you? Yeah, similar. I mean, I did have a 12th grade physics class, um, but that was basically, you know, rolling things down inclined planes. Yeah, that's that's and, the, in essence what I had. Yeah. Yeah. So um, there's nothing wrong. You know, you know, inclined planes allow you to understand how Newtonian dynamics works and gravity and whatever. And like, OK, there's some cool stuff in there. Um, but there was none of the, uh, you know, no, nothing too big picture in any of that. Um, it was very practical. It was like, I was, I was given the impression that the reason you would study like something like physics or even chemistry or, or really anything else was cause you can go and, you know, build a better mousetrap right. with those bits of knowledge. Um, and that's not why I'm excited about science. I'm glad other people are. I, I, I really like technology. Um, I am excited to be living in the 21st century. I, I, I'm fond of saying that we're living in the future 
and I feel that way a lot. I'm glad other people are into that, but I am not personally driven to build uh, technology. I, I want to know how the universe began and what it ma- what it's made of, and and I want to know that even if it never leads to a better model of my iPhone. You know, I you know I, I'm not I'm not in it for the technology, although I appreciate the technology. Yeah, it's one of the the interesting things about like getting introduced into physics because you, I have I was never told in high school by anyone that there's like this avenue of of the world that you can explore where you get paid to learn about the fundamental features of the universe, right? Because I always thought about it the same way you did. I never thought about like, man, I could get paid to study black hole to model to simulate black holes spinning around one another <laughs> on a supercomputer. Like, that's not something that that occurs in my seven-year-old brain. In fact, I, you said you have colleagues who started thinking about cosmology at seven. At seven, I was watching Hulk Hogan hit leg drops on Macho Man Randy Savage. The last thing I was ever thinking about was, I don't think I started thinking about cosmology until I was 18, probably. Yeah, I know? still remember that Hulk Hogan fight where he beat the Iron Sheik to win the oh, belt. Oh, yeah. That was, now we're was, talking. That was formative for my, my, my youth. It was for me too, man. You got Stone Cold Steve Austin chugging beers and and you know hitting Stone Cold stunners on Vince McMahon. That's the stuff I remember from being nine years old. I don't. Remember. I had a nine year old come into the the center that I work in, the the center for um, computational relativity and gravitation. Um, s- silly name, CCRG for short acronym. Scientists love them. Um, but there was a nine year old who came in and was talking to us like at a high level about this sort of stuff and i'm like man don't you aren't you watching wwe aren't you watching like football what's going on in in your brain i I was watching jason Voorhees, and i just my brain did not have the capacity to think about that stuff at nine years old or seven years old i don't even think it was an exposure thing i think even if exposed to it i literally would have been like nah i'm gonna watch uh i'm gonna watch the rock instead so for me i'm pretty sure that if i had been exposed to it i would have you know, been just kind of sucked in. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not saying that I would have been smart enough to understand what, you know, I'm not, not, I'm not saying anything like that right. yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of just sheer interest. And, and you know, I mean, when, whenever I was, whenever I did encounter something in that direction, um, you know, I, I didn't look away. I remember this children's book I had, I have no idea what it's called or anything now, but uh, probably some relative gave it to me for my birthday or Christmas or something. I don't, you know, but it was a stick figure book, um, but it was about astronauts. Mm-hmm. And um, in the end, it got science fiction-y. And like at first, you know, it's stick figures doing the moon landing and then stick figures on the space shuttle and then a space station. And then they were freezing themselves so they could travel long distances to other stars. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, this is the coolest thing ever. I, I still remember it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, when I did occasionally get introduced to a slightly bigger idea. Um, I, yeah, I was, I was always drawn to that sort of thing. That's, that's cool. And so you, you, you head off to college, right? Right. And you don't know you want to do science? No, not a clue. Um, I so would've... what do you do when you get to college? What do you, you just, you know, take well, English classes and. Well, so I, I went there to be a music student. Oh really? That's, yeah, um, I was uh, enthusiastic about music, and those I still am. Um, I, you know, started teaching. I, I played a bunch of instruments here and there, but I started teaching myself to play guitar when I was fourteen or fifteen, and I got 
pretty good. And, you know, I had a band that was on, had a minor record label deal, really minor. I emphasize the minor part. But, um, you know, I thought that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I got pretty disillusioned with, with being a music student. I just I saw a bunch of my classmates who could play their instruments really well, like not having work. And or at least not having any anything like the work that that I wanted to do. I mean, you can get a lot of money playing weddings and stuff, but you can't. You know, it, it's really hard. You have to be really talented and really lucky to be able to play music you actually like and and pay the bills. So I was like, well, I'll just keep playing music on my own, and I'll do something else. So I started to look around for other things. I took some econ classes, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, I took some history classes. I was probably going to go like in that direction and, you know, humanities or social science or something. Um, but I knew I was good at math. I was always good at math and some, you know, university advisor said, well, you know, there are a lot of jobs in engineering. Our engineering majors really like land in their feet and it's, everyone says it's interesting work. You should try that. So I tried that for a while. And one of the first classes I had to take was a one quarter class in modern physics. Mm-hmm. And in that quarter, I learned about special relativity and I learned about quantum mechanics. I mean, just a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah. but I just couldn't stop thinking about these two things. Um, I had never been a good student up to this point. I was a straight B student, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I, I never studied very hard. I was smart mm-hmm. enough to get by just coasts all the time yeah and um but in this particular class all i could do is go home with the textbook and stare at it and just work every problem and try to think about everything from 10 different angles and um yeah it wasn't long before i changed majors to physics and figured out that's really what i wanted to do i started to think about grad school all that there are so many people in this field it almost makes me feel left out there are so many people in this field who are obsessed with music like so yeah, many of, of them. Yeah, it's uncanny. I don't know what the common thread is. And it's, in, you know, there's an interesting parallel in what you said. You said, um, in order to make it in music, you have to be really have a lot of talent and a lot of luck. But wouldn't you say the exact same thing is true for the position you're in right now? Yeah. So I'm fond of saying that for me to have gotten where I've gotten in my career, I had to roll the dice a bunch of times and mm-hmm. always get double sixes. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah I, I've definitely exceeded all reasonable expectations for how things turned out. Um, but that being said, if whatever, what the expectation value of my life trajectory, if I did it a hundred times, I think, you know, based on somebody who has my personality type and, and, and all this stuff like mm-hmm. that I have, I think I'd wind up, you know, most of the time teaching at some small college somewhere and doing okay. I, you yeah. know, I would have it would the the median expectation would be pretty good, not right. where I am, but pretty good. Mm-hmm. Whereas in music, you know, the median expectation was I had some other job not doing music at all, and I make you know fifty bucks on the weekend playing at a wedding, playing a song yeah. I don't even like, serving you know, ice mocha lattes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's different in the two cases. Yeah. No, but, but, you know, re- regardless, this is a, it's not easy to get where you're at, right? 
And there's a, a lot of people vying for the positions. And now more than ever, I think that there's so many people and so little jobs out there. Um, so, so it's a monumental feat, even still. Academia isn't for people who aren't driven very hard to do that. Like, yeah. it, it, unless you really love it, and, and it's not just physics or something, it's all of academia, I think. Um, unless you really love it, there are much easier ways to, to uh, make a buck. Um, but for someone like me who loves it, um, it was a pretty good call. Yeah. So what is your religious background? Because th this is interesting. I, s I sent you sort of topics that I wanted to cover on the show, um, just broad strokes. And one of the things I, I typed is that um, a lot of the cosmologists I talked to seem to have some history in theism, some belief in a religion, some practicing of an organized religion. But then I was doing research, like any good interviewer before the show, and I saw Sean Carroll wrote a, a, an article. And the, the article was titled, Why Almost All Cosmologists Are Atheists. And I was like, well, okay, so first off, neither of us presented any data to support our claims uh, other than anecdotal evidence. And of course, Sean Carroll has probably met way more cosmologists than I have. Um, so do you have a history in organized religion or do you have a history in, in the belief in, in some theology? So I'm going to add one data point, my own, which is going to back up both your contention and Sean's. Okay. All right. So you both get a win here. Okay. Um, good. That's nice. So, okay. The, my, my story is I grew up with a couple of agnostic parents. Mm -hmm. I think they're atheists. They, they aren't willing to say that, but they sure, they sure seem like atheists to me, yeah. but okay. they yeah. would call themselves agnostic. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I, we were in a community that was, virtually 100% Christian, mm -hmm. a mixture of Catholics and Lutherans and a smattering of other things. But, um, you know, in, in small town, Minnesota, it's awfully hard to tell the Catholics and Lutherans apart from one another. Even they can't, I mean, right. it, it, yeah. the, the, their, their system of beliefs is really similar. So, um, so I'm, I'm just bathed in this theological framework, even though it's not coming from my, my household. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometime in my adolescence, uh, you know, there, I've got some, uh, kind of people I look up to in my life, adults I look up to who are talking about Christianity and how important it is. I start reading the Bible. I start thinking that taking this stuff really seriously. And I have this sort of personality that if I'm going to get into big ideas, I'm going to get all in. Yeah. Same reason, same reason that physics worked out so well for me. So I didn't just become mild. Uh, in my Christianity, like most of my neighbors were, I went all the way in. And I became a pretty hardline fundamentalist Christian for a number of years. I was at my church every Sunday. And on top of that, I, I taught Bible studies sometimes. I taught Sunday school. I played in my my church's uh, music group. Um, yeah, I was, I was all in. I knew my Bible forward and backward. Um, and... I took it really, really seriously. And over the next like five-ish years, all that slowly unraveled. I cared about religion too much to not learn everything I could about it. And the more I learned about it, the more it was became increasingly obvious that these were ideas invented by human beings over periods of hundreds and th uh, hundreds and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
they didn't have any greater claims on truth than you know any other groups of people doing their best to try to figure out the universe um and i slowly transitioned it wasn't overnight or anything but like i said over a handful of years i slowly transitioned from being one of the most uh fervent fundamentalist christians i knew to being a thoroughly atheistic individual so sean wins and you win in my case <laughs> yeah. i'm interested in like why why what about you wanted to pursue an understanding of 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 it so much was it that you sort of had this this built-in not need that's a weird word but this this sort of built-in feature of yourself that you you even at an early age you wanted to understand more about the the origin of 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 life and if the people around you were telling you that the origin of the universe was somehow inside of a book then it makes sense that you would try to explore that book and now that that you've you've transitioned into instead saying wait a minute i can i can learn about this in a more fundamental way through physics and and now i'll explore it down that avenue too yeah, I think that might be close to the right story. Um, mm -hmm. I've thought about it a lot, and and, and I'm not really sure uh, about exactly how this happened. But I think the main reason I went the theistic way I did when I was an adolescent was that that was the only uh, system of beliefs or ideas that was being presented to me at that time Mm -hmm. that tried to answer big questions. Right. Um, like my parents are very pragmatic people and um, they would just kind of not care what the answers to those big questions were. They were much more interested in uh, more practical questions. So I didn't get a lot of like deep philosophical underpinnings mm -hmm. there. And, you know, nothing about pop culture was trying to do that. I, I didn't you know, read a lot or even know if I wanted to explore ideas like, like that, where I would, what I would read or, or you know, anything like that at that point. Yeah. Um, you know, no one was suggesting I should read Plato or uh, consider learning more about science. Like that just wasn't something anyone ever talked about where I, where I was at that time. Yeah. So Christianity had a monopoly on big ideas. And, um, yeah, I, I wanted to explore big ideas. And since they had the monopoly, that's where I went. Yeah, I, I, I'm so glad you brought up big ideas. Um, because, you know, early on in your book, you, you've, you mentioned some of these big ideas that you did transition into. Um, and some of the biggest questions that you think still exist in this newfound way that you, you, this new tool that you use to understand the universe you live in. And, and so of those, you, you cite four. I think you cite four main ones, unless I, I, I'm misremembering. But you cite dark matter, you cite dark energy, you cite the asymmetry of matter and antimatter, and you cite inflation as four of the, the big questions in science yeah. today, cosmology and physics today. So I want to go through some of those and explore okay. them and, and sort of Great. explain to people what they are and why they're big questions. And why we haven't answered them and, and how we might in the future. And so, um, you know, I'd like to start with dark matter. Sure. So we, we make observations um, that clearly, say, maybe 40 years ago at this point, that clearly do not agree with our current understanding of the way that gravity should work in something like a galaxy. 
Okay, we see flat rotation curves. Or when we look at galaxy clusters, we see ga individual galaxies that are moving way too fast to stay bound, yet somehow they don't get expelled from their galaxy. Um, to account for this, we do, we, we, we hypothesize um, that there must be some form of matter surrounding the galaxy that we can't see. And at first, we don't come up with all crazy ideas about what it could be, but, but we just say there must be some matter we can't see. For all we know, it could be bricks, right? Um, can, can you talk us through this, this, how this belief has changed over time? From, from very, at, at, at the very first point, just noticing something interesting in empirical data, in data that we, we get in our telescopes, to now. Yeah, so, you know, the, the history of dark matter is, is pretty complicated. Um, there were a lot of things that we can look back in hindsight and say, oh, that was evidence of dark matter. Mm -hmm. um, but not most astronomers weren't very eager to uh, contemplate this hypothesis until the data was really overwhelming. But sometime in the 70s, there were just so many different lines of evidence from so many different kinds of observations, mm -hmm. all of which could be reconciled together if about five-sixths of the matter in the universe were made of this, uh, you know, uh, gravitationally attractive but um, not easily seen form of matter, dark matter, that, that that became the consensus view around that time, around the mid-70s and, mm -hmm. and increasingly yeah. so later. But then the real smoking gun – let me back up. So in the 70s, you had galaxies and the way that they were rotating suggested they were embedded in galaxy halos. We knew that disks of stars like we find our galaxy and other galaxies, that's not a stable configuration unless you embed it in a halo, in a halo of dark matter. Right. So, so it didn't make sense unless there was that dark matter there. You mentioned that the dynamics of galaxy clusters tells us there's a lot of dark matter in those systems. Um, since then, we've seen gravitational lensing that allows us to weigh these, these systems. And in fact, they contain tons of dark matter. Right. Um, when you run a simulation, a computer simulation of matter from a relatively uniform state forward in time, you only get something that looks like our universe if you include a lot of dark matter in that simulation. Yes. And then, like, the real smoking gun, in my opinion, was when they started measuring uh, the detailed temperature fluctuations in the cosmic microwave background. And those fluctuations, those patterns of those fluctuations look exactly like what you'd expect in a universe with a lot of cold, dark matter in it. So all these things together just, I, I think, settles the case. I think beyond a reasonable doubt, our universe contains an awful lot of cold, dark matter. I see. So I, I do a lot of media and I sit in your seat a lot and I get a lot of questions from what I'll call skeptics. Um, and by far the most popular question is the 85% number. So 85% of the matter in the universe must be dark matter. Right. We're not about. talking about energy content, but, but we're talking about um, matter itself. How do we know that? How do I answer that question in the future? So 85%, does that come directly from the CMB? Does that come directly from measurements we've made? It does. So, and it's not just one measurement. So the cosmic mm -hmm. microwave background will give you that number, but so will the large, so will this large scale structure of our universe. So will the abundance of matter in galaxy clusters or in galaxies. All of these provide pretty independent ways of getting at that number. Some right. measure it better than others, but they all give you consistent numbers. And the answer is right around 
85% or so. I see. Speaking of skeptics, by the way, Dan, mm. I, in my research for this interview, I see that you made an appearance on Ancient Aliens. Yeah. <laughs> what was that experience like for you? It was really weird. Um, so I got a call, I think. This was a number of years ago, so I might get some of these details wrong. But roughly speaking, I got a call from the Fermilab communications office saying um, this film crew from the History Channel is going to come. And they're looking for someone who's willing to talk about Einstein on camera. I'm like, can you do that? Like, yeah, sure. That sounds great. And at some point I did find out it was the show Ancient Aliens, but I was like, you know, like, I don't want to talk about Einstein and aliens. That sounds really goofy. Yes. And they said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Um, we're going to ask you just straight up questions about Einstein and his work, you know, and, and they stuck to that. Um, and I, I sat with them out in the uh, CDF building, which is one of the old particle detectors from the Tevatron days. And uh, for like four or five hours while they interviewed me on camera and mm -hmm. the word alien never came up. They just wanted to hear about Einstein's work and the, uh, you know, his, his papers of 1905 and what relativity and quantum mechanics are all about and all this stuff. And uh, they kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And I just couldn't figure out why. And after all these hours, I'm getting tired. Yeah. And I kind of slip up at the end. I didn't say anything wrong, but I'm talking about the 1905 papers and how important they were. And I say it, it, it was so incredible. It was virtually miraculous. Okay. That's kind yeah. of some hyperbole yeah. I would uh -huh. usually not use. And they're like, oh, oh, we got it. That's all we need. Thanks. And that's how they transition in the show with that line from straight five minute discussion of Einstein and how great he was to oh, maybe we need aliens to explain why he was so good at physics. Yeah, so they make you say that... In the rest of the show. <laughs> they make you say, answer the same questions over and over until you, you start using different adjectives and until yeah. you get the adjective they want. Yeah, until there's enough hyperbole that they think they can make the jump with it. At least that's what happened in this one case. That's what it seems like to me. I, I don't want to describe motives yeah. or whatever. No, you no, know, no, I but know. That's yeah. what it seemed like. Yeah, I talked to... Uh, I talked to um, um, some some people on the show before in the art in the field of archaeology and some people who are connected to the show ancient aliens not that they produce the show or anything but that they're in the in the realm of pseudo archaeology okay and so uh J dr john hoops is one of the the big ones at kansas state and um he he is big into the field of researching pseudo archaeology and he talks about um about ancient aliens a lot and one of the things we talked about on the show is the number of scientists that watch that show is kind of amazing. Like even archaeologists. Is it high or low? No, no, no. It's high. It's high. <laughs> because it, we, we, we watch it in a way that is like of interest, not belief, but of, of interest in, in the content of the show. It's like is the, it more a sociological uh, curiosity than a scientific one? Exactly. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like a curiosity in why people believe the things that they tend to believe. And how hey, the I've show? I watched the show before. Um, yeah. I mean, not very often, but yeah, I watched one or two episodes because I thought, oh, this is the weirdest thing ever. Yeah. You really think the pyramids were made by aliens, man? Like, wow, yes, it's crazy talk. But you or know, flat saying, earthers or whatever. I, oh, yeah, yeah, I can't look away from that stuff. <laughs> and they just keep making it too. It's still going. It's amazing. 
It must be 15 seasons in or yes, something. It's, right. and, it's, and they connect aliens to everything at this point. <laughs> and, um, you know, one of the, the interesting things that, that uh, Dr. John Hoop said to me was that it's actually not a bad show. I shouldn't say he said this. He agreed with me when I said it. Um, it's actually not a bad show if you like archaeology. Because if you can sift through the nonsense, if you can sift through the the associations with aliens, you actually do get a pretty good show on the history of, of most archaeological sites. Because they do embed a lot of good archaeological uh, you know, information in those episodes. And there's... You know, the episode I was on, I mean, a, a casual observer would have learned something about Einstein. Exactly. Learned a little yeah. bit about relativity and quantum mechanics. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. that's... Um, too bad the alien stuff had to be included. Yeah, but. so it's like an interesting, you know, it's like an interesting trade-off in the world of outreach because you get more eyes. You get mi- literally millions. I think they get like two million viewers an episode. Wow. Um, you get that much, you get that many eyes per week on the show. And the, the, the trade-off is, are you willing to sacrifice good information um, alongside the alien stuff? You know, that that's the question. Yeah. And I think that in large part, I think that it's okay to do that because... No matter – the show is so popular, right? But I don't see that many people thinking aliens built the pyramids around me every day. So clearly yeah, it's Yeah, I wonder, I wonder how many people take the show seriously. I, don't, I really don't know. Yeah, the, the, and the, you know, the consensus by the people I talk to is that not many people do. Most people just like the show in general. They like the information they get and they like being able to sift through the, the nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting that, that you took part in that and um, – Props to you for doing it too, because I think a lot of people would have been like, "Oh, ancient aliens! I'm gonna, I'm gonna pass," you know. Well, and plenty of my colleagues make fun of me for it when they learn about this, but I laugh it off. It's, uh, I mean, honestly, something if something interesting comes up that I can do, I'll get over pretty much any qualms I have just to not be bored. I mean, it sounds pretty interesting, right? It's a yeah. weird talk about it dinner parties years later. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll tell this story. It's a good story. Yeah, that's the main motivation for me, if I'm being honest. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's a, it's you have to do that sort of thing though to keep it interesting. I think you know, I find that the talking to scientists on podcasts is way more refreshing than talking to scientists at like a conference or something. You know, and yeah, I probably to, agree with you. <laughs> yeah, um, it's 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 way it's way easier for me, and I actually think it's better for an audience. Like, if you want to communicate information, I, I think this is a way better platform for doing it than something akin to, um, like a, an hour long lecture, you know, inside of a lecture hall where you, where you're showing them plots and graphs and things of the sort. Well, I have to, I have to be careful here. Cause my, uh, the, the, I'm giving one hour lectures as part of my book tour starting tomorrow. So yes. I have to say that's a great way to learn about, about cosmology. It's, it is, it is, it is, it is. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. But I'm talking about, you know, in terms of the, the number of people that you could feasibly reach. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, certainly true. I mean, in, unless you, yeah. unless you put the lectures in a, online in such a way that i mean think of all the ted talks that get seen every day so there's a lot of different ways and people and you know are prone or or, or enjoy uh, absorbing information in different ways some prefer to read a book some prefer prefer to see a video some prefer to listen to a podcast i'm glad that now you can kind of get your information and you know customizable almost you can get it in the way that works for you and this is probably a great format for a lot of people I think the the boom in podcasting has everything to do with the fact that we we have now found a way to occupy lost time. 
So yeah. think you you could do you could listen to a podcast while driving. You could listen to a podcast on the treadmill. You could you can do all of these things where you you can't read while doing them. Although I do see people doing that in traffic sometimes, reading a book <laughs> or, or something of the sort, um, or in their Tesla. I do see, you know I do see people trying to to read on the treadmill and whatnot. Um, I have a collaborator who learned how to use Python while running on the treadmill, and I'm not convinced I understand how that was done. That um, is ambitious. Wow. Yes, but nevertheless, you know, for most people, this is a form of of occupying lost time and I, th I think it's a very good form and a, and a great way to try to integrate education into it so that, that's the goal um but yeah, that's how i use it i mean i listen to a lot of podcasts and they're in my commute they're in the shower when i'm brushing my teeth when i'm washing the dishes yeah. like lost time exactly exactly so transitioning you know back to dark matter yeah do we have any idea what could make up dark matter you know some fundamental constituent of of dark matter and how we can feasibly detect whatever that thing is here on earth yeah so we have not just an idea we have many ideas what of the course. dark matter can yes. be right we have a long mm -hmm. list of what we call dark matter candidates yes uh, these are all hypothetical particle species and um if you asked me 10 years ago and if you asked a lot of my colleagues 10 years ago they would have told you, well, yeah, there are a lot of ideas, but like one group of these ideas really stands out. Well, we call them WIMPs or weakly interacting massive particles. And we like this class of ideas because if there existed these kind of heavy, uh, very feebly interacting particles, they mm -hmm. would have been produced in a huge abundance in the early universe. And they would have uh, wiped most of their abundance out as the universe expanded and cooled, leaving only a little bit behind. And that little bit turns out to match the abundance of dark matter we find in the universe, at least approximately. Mm -hmm. So it was so easy to explain how the dark matter would have been formed in the early universe. We thought this was really compelling. Furthermore, we thought we knew how to build experiments that would see these particles if they existed. So we went to underground mines and we built what we call direct detection experiments. Yeah. These are basically chunks of ordinary matter well, ordinary is in, by which I mean made of atoms, but it's quite mm -hmm. sophisticated in, in the technology right. of how they're built. But um, dark matter can travel straight through the earth into that mine and collide with those atoms, um, leaving a measurable impact. Um, and that's the sort of thing we've done. Um, those experiments have gotten really sophisticated and really sensitive um, on, on technological grounds. They've exceeded all expectations, I think. And yet we have not seen any webs. Right. And so this is a problem because, um, you know, from my perspective, we have detected neutrinos, right? Yep. And so we have, in a way, sort of validated the experimental methodology here. Well, I have no doubt that the experiments work. Right. Um, they're just, they're really good at seeing a thing that turns out not to exist. Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. If it um, existed, I'm sure these experiments would be successful. I'm not worried about that. Okay, so wh where do you think the hang-up is? It's, is it likely not um, anything that we have, we have theorized it to be? Well, you know, it, it could be that dark matter does consist of WIMPs, but mm -hmm. the, these WIMPs are just a little less strongly interacting or even more feebly interacting with atoms than um, we're currently sensitive to, and we're going to find these things next year. Like, that's, right. that's a logical possibility. And, mm -hmm. and every year, these experiments get a little bit more sensitive and uh, rule out even more of the theories we have for what dark matter might be. Um, but the longer this goes on, the more people like me think, well, maybe the answer isn't WIMPs at all. 
Maybe it's something else. And since uh, WIMPs, we had a particular idea for how they would have been formed in the early universe. Maybe the dark matter was formed in some entirely different way. And maybe even the early universe itself may have played out in a quite different way than we had long imagined. Um, you know, maybe the universe expanded differently or at different rates or containing different sorts of stuff in the first, you know, second or millionth of a second after the big bang. Right. Um, maybe there were phase transitions we don't know about. Maybe there were, you know, pretty dramatic events. Um, I'm writing a paper right now on scenarios in which the early universe was dominated, not by matter or radiation, but by a whole bunch of little black holes. Like those are the sort of radical ideas that, um, like could shed some light on why we haven't found dark matter yet. I see. And it's a very um, exciting avenue going forward. You know, from a more philosophy, you know, philosophy of science side of things, one of the things that has always puzzled me with these experiments we use is say we do detect some wimp, right? Some weakly interactive, weakly interacting massive particle. How do we definitively say that that was a dark matter particle? You know, how do we say that that is the thing that makes up dark matter? And it wasn't just a, a stray wimp, if you will. Um, sure. Right. So th- when you detect the first wimp, you won't know. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Right. But when you start measuring all of its properties, um, you can get pretty far in, 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 exactly. uh, yeah, yeah. in, in, in answering this question. So, for mm-hmm. example, we won't just measure these particles hit the detector, but we'll measure how many detect, uh, hit the detector, uh, how heavy the particles are. Um, how, what kind of nuclei they interact with and in what proportions will measure their velocity distribution and the directions they come from. Mm-hmm. So we'll kind of be able to reconstruct the local population of these things. And then we'll use other techniques too. Like we'll take the Large Hadron Collider and we'll see if we can produce the dark matter particles in the collisions at that, that particle accelerator and measure the characteristics of, of some of its characteristics there. And then we'll use things like uh, gamma ray telescopes and cosmic ray detectors mm-hmm. to look for the particles that are produced when dark matter particles interact with themselves. Right. And we can use that to like with a gamma ray telescope, you can make a map of how the dark matter is distributed throughout the Milky way or throughout the universe. And it, you know, you get all that information together and I think you can make a pretty compelling case one way or the other that the thing you're looking at is the dark matter or not. I see. So transitioning now into something else that's dark, dark energy. Okay. Yeah. If I could summarize it in one sentence, it would be the universe isn't just expanding, it's accelerating. That's can right. You, it's expanding you, faster today than it was yesterday. Right. Can you can you break down dark energy from a cosmological perspective and, and sort of let's go through the, the same thing that we just went through with dark matter. What what are the explanations, the leading explanations? Because of course there are many. Um, yeah. what are the leading explanations in the world of of, of cosmology right now? So if you take Einstein's general theory of relativity and you ask in a universe like ours, you look at it, the universe and it's filled mostly with matter, or at least the visible part or not visible, the, the detectable parts are mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, dark matter and atoms. And, um, and you ask, how should that universe be evolving with time? And the answer is it should either be expanding or contracting. And we've measured that it's expanding. And furthermore, it should be expanding in such a way that it's gradually slowing down. Right. You know, depending on how much matter there is, it could be slowing it down at different rates. But it, it kind of like if I if I throw a baseball up away from the earth, 
Um, I, you know, could take a number of different trajectories, but all of them involve the baseball slowing down as it moves away from the earth. Right. None of them involve a baseball rocketing off, accelerating as it flies away from the earth. So the universe should be the same way. But in the late 90s, um, it became clear that that's not what's going on. The universe is getting fast, uh, expanding faster. It's growing uh, at an accelerating rate. And in the context of general relativity, the only way we have to understand this is if the universe isn't really dominated by matter, but the overall energy of the universe has something else in it. We call it dark energy. And um, the way I think about it is if I take a cubic meter, any cubic meter of space at any time or any place in the universe's history, Mm -hmm. and I take all the stuff out of it, I take out all the light, all of the atoms, all the dark matter, all the neutrinos, all of that. So it's totally empty or as empty as it can be. That cubic meter of space still has a fixed amount of energy in it. And it's the same at all times and places. So as the universe expands, all the other stuff gets diluted. Like if I take a cubic meter and I grow it into two cubic meters, the density of matter in it goes down by a factor right. two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this dark energy, it doesn't dilute. Like I said, it has the same density mm-hmm. at all times and places. So as time goes on, the dark energy makes up a bigger and bigger fraction of the universe's energy density. And once it starts to dominate, it turns that ex- the expansion curve from something that's slowing down into something that's accelerating. I see. So how do how do we explain this? Okay, um, what fundamental feature of the universe is meant to be responsible f- for the behavior of of the universe doing this? Yeah. Well, the short answer is we don't know. Yes. Um, the you know kind of go to explanation that we point to is that quantum mechanics says that even empty space isn't really empty. Mm-hmm. You, it, you know, the, the language I'm about to use is kind of sloppy and imprecise, but it's often repeat, you know, told this way. And it, it, there's some truth to it. But the idea is that particles are spontaneously being created in the vacuum and then spontaneously uh, disappearing. Mm-hmm. So everywhere throughout all space, stuff is kind of popping into and out of existence. So um, that means that there should be an energy density to empty space. So, okay, you might think, oh, this solves the problem. Okay, so just quantum mechanics, um, these particles spontaneously coming into and out of existence, that explains why space has energy density and explains what we call dark energy. The problem is, is we can do a calculation uh, based on what we know about quantum mechanics about how much dark energy there should be, and we don't Mm -hmm. get anything close to the amount we measure. We get something 10 to the 120 times bigger. And I think it's worth pausing for a second to realize just how big a number that is. Yeah. Um, I've tried to think of anything that there are 10 to the 120 of, and I'm yet to come up with one. If anybody can come up with one, let me know. Yeah. I don't, um, I don't know if there are. Yeah. Um, possible things. Yeah. I, I wouldn't, I literally can't come up with anything, but it's a, a, a mind bogglingly huge number. So and, did you um, say 10 to the 121? Is that what you said? 10 to the 120. 10 to the 120. So for people at home who, who maybe don't quite understand what that means, um, that's a 10 with 120 zeros following it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. a big number. <laughs> yeah. So what that tells us is that we're, we're thinking about this all wrong. There's, there's something, something different. We didn't you know, just 
casually, you know, get a little bit off here. That we're mm-hmm. this is fundamentally different. Right. For some this reason, isn't a factor of two, right? This is yeah, a, yeah, yeah. This is the sort of thing that tells us that, uh, you know, well, there's there there is dark energy in the universe, and we shouldn't be surprised by that. But there is nothing like the quantity that our theories say there should be. Okay. Now, I mean, this is um, one of the dark dark energy feels to me like the most perplexing of all of the the problems because it it really was a measurement that that was so far away from i think at least you know reading the history of science was so far away from what anyone had expected to see the the universe accelerating i think you had a couple camps who were like the universe might be accelerating but for the most part you i don't even know if you had a couple maybe you had one two um, but yeah. for the most part, almost everyone, you know, thought we should measure some form of, of slowing down. Yeah, and, I, I think you're right. Um, there, there were a couple of, of, of notable camps of dissent, but you're basically right. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know, to talk to someone from that, that era and someone intimately involved with that avenue of research and get their, their feelings on, on how that changed everything. You know, because when you get a result like that in a field, a negative result like that in a field that that v- completely does not meet expectation it it really requires everyone to take a step back and begin thinking that maybe the stuff that they're doing wasn't quite right yeah so there's one camp uh, of people who before the dark energy was discovered was saying that it probably would exist um mm-hmm. which i think is are particularly interesting. And here I'm thinking basically about Steve Weinberg's paper from 1987, where, uh, so just so you, in case your audience doesn't know, Steve Weinberg is, is a Nobel laureate. He's one of the particle physicists who constructed the standard model, uh, of particle physics. Um, he is, you know, universally revered as, you know, one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. I, you know, I think that's about right. And he wrote this paper in 1987 saying, well, the thing is, we think there should be 10 to the 120 times too much dark energy. And when he says too much, he means like we can tell there isn't that much dark energy in our universe. He didn't yeah. use the word dark energy, but I, I will. But basically, same idea. If, if there were 10 to 120 times more dark energy than there is, the universe would have ex- started ex- uh, as accelerated expansion really early and it would have expanded so fast that, you know, nothing like stars, planets, or galaxies, or life would have ever emerged. Every particle would have flown away from every other so fast as to have no opportunity for life to exist. So that can't be the one we find ourselves in. So he reasons that if there were a very, very large number of universes, uh, mm-hmm. you know, some vast number of universes, yeah. and they all have a little bit different amounts of dark energy, um, we would find ourselves on average existing in a universe, um, that has about the most dark energy that is compatible with life forming. I see. Yeah. Okay, this is anthropic arc. Right. Uh huh. And, uh, he said he worked it out and he said, well, that's about this much. And turns out that's about the number we find, you know, mm-hmm. within a stone's throw. So I think. You know, uh, a lot of people get angry about cosmologists talking about the multiverse and stuff, and they say stuff isn't testable and whatever. But I think that when you make a prediction based on reasoning associated with the multiverse, and then that prediction turns out to be right, 
if you're being intellectually honest, you should say that makes it more likely that the multiverse exists. Not, it's not a proof. It's not mm-hmm. the end of the story. But I think, you know, when dark energy was discovered and the quantity it was, I think the right response to that is, oh, I guess it's more likely that our universe is part of a multiverse than um, I knew it was before this measurement. Yeah, do you think there's there's a couple ideas in physics today that have the most, we'll say, disagreement? Like people mm. who are more more um, senior in the field, I I notice them have severe disagreement with many of of the ideas, um, in spite of maybe some of their minor successes, and they tend to ignore the fact that in some cases, um, the theories we have now also don't necessarily explain everything, right? And so of those, you have modified gravity, which I think by this point has, has had the, the nail in the coffin, um, to explain dark matter. I, maybe there are people revising I mean, it and, and I certainly like think it's, it's a, it's, it's a non viable hypothesis. I right. mean, there are some weird versions of Mon, some superfluid, uh, mm-hmm. dark matter stuff that, that like mimic dark matter to such an extent that they're like, they, they they manage to keep it alive, but the basically Mon is a hypothesis yeah. doesn't work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's a, a essentially been killed. But you, you know, you also have aspects of of string theory. It's it's gotten so many different names now because there's been so many different theories that have sort of come from it that I, I don't even know. I don't know the state of those ideas. I don't know. All I know is people generally wholeheartedly disagree with them, and I don't hear a lot of whys. I don't hear a lot of reasons why. People think that these theories are, are nonsensical or won't work. Maybe you can shed some light on that. I don't know how much experience you have. So when I hear people saying things critical of string theory, it's not usually that they're arguing string theory is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, what I hear more often is that string theory is somewhere between very difficult to impossible to test. Yeah. And therefore, it's not science. And that's their words, not mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's just, you know, philosophizing. It's just metaphysics or something. Um, my view is that there are, I mean, there are things that don't fall inter- under the purview of the scientific method that literally can't be tested. But string theory isn't one of those. String theory is something that if we build a particle accelerator to the size of the solar system, we could learn about. Now, um, we're not going to do that anytime soon. Right. So it's practically very difficult to test, or at least it seems to be right now. But, you know, one day, maybe in my lifetime, a paper might get published which points out, oh, here's an experiment we can do to test string theory. I don't know what that paper will look like or what it will say, um, but that's a totally plausible thing that might happen one day. Um, and I think reasonable people can look at string theory and other types of science and and debate what the right allocation of resources is. If I'm on a, you know, DOE theory panel, Department of Energy theory panel and handing out grant money, I'm probably not inclined to spend a ton of it on string theory. I probably think we've overinvested in it, but I would spend some on it, Mm -hmm. you know, not a lot less than we are. So for me, it's not a, you know, position from, principle as much as just a practical question of where are we going to make the most progress uh with the resource the finite resources we have to work with yeah that that's that's generally the the 
that's generally the the belief. You know, the counter argument to that is well, the the things that we are allocating money for are not necessarily solving the problems. They are in many ways, um, to use the the word from your book because I, I really like this this terminology, is we're you know having an effort to tie up loose ends, and in many ways mm. we are tying up some loose ends. But it seems every time we tie up a loose end, um, another end becomes untied. And so the the question is, should there be more money put into avenues of research that may very well not work? I mean, um, you can think about many places where we've done this in the past. LIGO is a great example of investing money. I talked to Ray Weiss, and and um, he told me that when when the initial stages of LIGO, literally no one believed in that experiment. I mean, you had to scratch it. Like three people had to scratch and claw even to get some money. And the, the message from the NSF was a lot of times, why are we going to spend billions of dollars on something that is is likely not going to work? And even if it does work, it's going to um, not be able to detect the thing that you claim is there because the thing that you claim is there isn't even there. You know, that was sort of the, the, the mindset. So, you know, that's the counter argument. The counter argument is you, it's important to fund things that maybe seem out of left field because maybe the solutions just- lie there. To yeah. some extent, I agree with you, but you know, you don't want to go too far right. afield, right? And of um, course, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I, I'm yeah, not yeah, advocating yeah. that, yeah. But um, I think a a smart, a wise scientific program includes kind of bread and butter mm-hmm. physics uh, research yeah. that where there are well defined goals that we know how to reach, measurements that the community will benefit from. Um, so, like, right now, um, I'm really excited to see the Department of Energy neutrino physics program measure the CP bilating air, uh, angles in the neutrino mass matrix. So okay. the, you'll these, have to break that one down for yeah, us. Yeah, 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 I'm going to do that. So okay. neutrinos, the, these particles that are super light and, and uh, they, they, they transform into each other. We call it oscillations. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are these numbers that de- de- define uh, – you know, it's, 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 the details aren't that interesting, but there's this thing called charge parity symmetry and they, it gets broken and these numbers tell you how much and they have some implications for the early universe and stuff. But the main point is like, we know exactly how to measure these numbers. Okay. Like it's going to happen. Um, we just have to carry out the big experiments to do it. Um, we are not fishing here. We yeah. know what the target is. We know how to do it. It will get done. That's good. We need some right. of that. Yeah. But then I would say, like, I'm also really enthusiastic. You know, Fermilab is now involved in this uh, ADMX, uh, Axion Dark Matter Search. Yeah. We don't know that axions exist. They're mm-hmm. pretty well motivated, you know. They're, but but uh, we know how to start to start to look for them. We don't know where they'll be. But we can start kind of casting this net and looking for these particles called axions. Maybe they make up the dark matter. Um, and if they do, this experiment might find them. And that's exciting and important. And then I would say that there are even, you know, more fishy or fishing sort of expeditions, like where you don't even have a specific theory you're trying to test. You just know that if you measure this thing way, way better, mm-hmm. um, there's any number of things that you might discover. Right. And sometimes that makes sense, too. Um, now, you don't want to do that with small steps, but with big steps, for sure. You know, if you build a new telescope that's 10 times more powerful than the last telescope. I guarantee you find new stuff. Yeah. Um, it, it happens every single time. So, um, like, for example, I think it's really important that when the Large Hadron Collider is, you know, 
done or mature or, or finishing its mission that we build uh, a next generation energy machine, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, that can test the laws of physics at even higher energies and temperatures. Um, not that I know what they'll find. I really don't. Um, but I think history has shown that you, when you do that, you tend to discover new fundamental facets of nature. Yeah. Um, and even if you can't tell in advance what they're going to be. Yeah. We're going to talk about the, the LHC in a little bit because I, I do want to explore that, that avenue with you. Cool. Um, but, but moving down our, our list of, of things that, um, you consider to be some of the big, biggest open questions, the matter antimatter asymmetry of the universe is on that yeah. list, right? Mm-hmm. This is, is one of the things that I've read the, the popular science books written by most people that do popular science writing from before I was born to now. Um, I've read many of them. And I remember this being the, one of the most perplexing problems that they've all talked about. Yeah. Stephen Hawking to Carl Sagan up now to you to Neil deGrasse Tyson and, and Brian Keating and everyone in, in the, in the middle of those. Um, this is a perplexing problem and it's been for a long time. Can you explain what the problem exactly is? Yeah. So, I mean, this, like you said, this is a problem that's been with us for 50 years or so. Mm-hmm. I mean, since it was pointed out. Um, but basically it boils down to this. Um, we know a lot about the laws of physics and what those laws of physics as we currently understand them tell us is that whenever you create or destroy matter, you create or destroy and dis- or destroy alongside it an equal amount of antimatter. Mm-hmm. So antimatter are kind of the mirror copies, if you will, of the known particles. So the electron, which is a negatively charged particle, has a particle that's just like it called the positron but that is positively charged. So all of these uh, quantum properties are reversed in -hmm. the antimatter version. Yeah. Um, There are quarks and they have anti-quarks. The the photon would have an anti-photon, except that since there's no electric charge or other properties like that of the photon, the anti-photon is just the photon. So it's like kind of like the, the negative of zero is still zero. Yes. Um, Okay. So you've got all these things whenever, you create a new electron in nature, you create along with it a positron. And whenever you destroy an electron, you have to destroy a positron with it. These things get created and destroyed together. Mm-hmm. And in the early universe, we have, as using the laws of physics as we currently understand them, the early universe should have been filled with equal amounts of matter and antimatter. And all that stuff should have destroyed each other as the space as you, as the space expanded and cooled and that means we shouldn't have any matter in our universe today or at least we shouldn't have any appreciable amounts and yet we look around our universe and we find lots of matter you know yeah. i'm made of atoms you're made of atoms all the stuff we you know have and interact with is made of atoms none of that should exist so this means there's something about the laws of physics we don't understand and they dictated that some weird stuff happened in the early universe and the first sometime in the first uh, fraction of a second after the big bang. Mm-hmm. And this allowed more matter than antimatter to exist. So this means that there, there have to exist processes we don't know about mm-hmm. that change the net amount of matter minus antimatter. There have to be processes uh, that are biased in favor of matter over antimatter and at some point in the early universe, they, something had to be what we say uh, is out of equilibrium. Something happened that was sudden or dramatic 
not some sort of smooth, steadily evolving process. Those three things must be true. Um, but we don't really know how they were, uh, ha- how that happened. We, uh, we have a lot of guesses. Uh, any number of, of us theoretical cosmologists have written down theories of how that may have happened. Um, but we just don't know which is true. Um, but it tells us some unexpected stuff must have happened in that first fraction of a second. Right. And so it's important that we talk about the first fraction of a second. That brings us to, you know, the, the, the fourth topic, which is inflation. Okay. Yeah. Or just the, the very early of the universe in general. Okay. You, you have this period at the early universe. And I talked to, to, um, Brian Keating about this yeah. and, and, uh, he's a real expert when it comes to the cosmic microwave background and measuring the, co- and he's also the director of the Simons Observatory, which I think they sent me some space dust actually, which is behind me. Um, but they, <laughs> they, that's pretty cool. I don't know if it's real space dust. It might be, uh, it might also be fake. Anyhow. If Brian says it's real, I take his word. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So he, his, I was talking to him recently and, and he indicated to me that he thinks the, the, the next frontier in the realm of understanding the early universe is going to be detecting gravitational waves that were produced in this inflationary epoch, this time at the very beginning of the universe when the universe itself was, was expanding and produced the gravitational waves that we will be able to detect with the next generation of gravitation. Well, hopefully we'll be able to detect with the next. Yeah. Yes, of course I have some wood here. Um, so hopefully we'll be able to detect with the next generation of detectors. Um, what do you see? You work with the LHC, right? So you are trying in many ways to, well, people in your field in general, are trying in many ways to, as I understand it, recreate some of the interactions that should have happened at that early time. So where do you see the next frontier here lying? Do you see bigger particle accelerators teaching us more? Do you see the gravitational wave detectors teaching us more? Yes, yes, and yes. Yes to um, all, yeah. So let me say a few words about the LAC first. Yeah, sure. So the LAC is the world's most powerful particle accelerator. Uh-huh. Um, it's the 17-mile circular tunnel under the city of Geneva, Switzerland, and uh, in surrounding nearby France. Around that tunnel, super powerful magnets uh, accelerate protons to speeds of 99.999999997% of the speed of light. Mm-hmm. Did you have to count? I'm curious. Did you I have did, to like yeah, count with your time. fingers? Yeah, that's yeah. Okay. Three, three, and then nine, seven. That's how I remember it. <laughs> I get it wrong all the time. If if I get it wrong, sometimes I think people will forgive me. But yeah, it's awfully close to the speed of light. Yeah. Um, and then at these designated points, beams of these protons are head are directly head on collide, uh, smashed into each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we have 600 million collisions like this happening every second. And these machines called particle detectors, it's a, you know, they're like gymnasium sized collections of electronics. They measure all the particles that come out of these individual explosions 600 million times a second. Mm-hmm. These, the reason we do this is that according to Einstein, e equals mc squared tells us if you put a lot of energy in one place at one time, E, you can create things with a lot of mass, M. So by smashing together these these protons with so much kinetic energy, we can make heavy exotic forms of matter like Higgs bosons, top quarks, Z bosons, and the list goes on and on. And all of this stuff is really rare in our universe today, but was really common in the first uh, fraction of a second after the Big Bang. In particular, the kind of collisions that the LHC creates 
were the were similar to the kinds of collisions that were going on a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. So we have no way of directly looking at the universe a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, but we can recreate those conditions to mm -hmm. an extent in the laboratory yeah. and learn about how our universe was evolving then. Now, connecting that to inflation is another story. We don't know when inflation happened, but it almost certainly happened well before a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang. Yeah. And um, I do I agree with Brian that the uh, B-mode polarization from gravitational waves is probably like one of the most exciting things in the kind of next several years or 10 years or something in, mm -hmm. in, 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 in cosmology. Um, if we were to measure that, if we were to detect that feature in the cosmic microwave background, it would give us a pretty good measure of how much energy space contained when inflation was going on, um, which is really, really big deal. Um, also, we want to measure something called non-Gaussianity in the cosmic microwave background that will tell us other things about how inflation played out. Um, but right now, I mean, most cosmologists are you know, reasonably confident that something like inflation happened, but mm -hmm. we know next to nothing about it. So um, we really need to, to, to have a few more bits of information to build around. Cause right now, kind of like dark matter, we have a lot of theories or kind of like the matter and antimatter symmetry. Actually, we have lots of theories and we just don't know which one is right. And these sorts of measurements that, that Brian's part of and many other cosmologists are part of will get us uh, a big step closer to narrowing down that field and getting us closer to the right answer. I see. So um, I, I've never heard it expressed this way before, but this is kind of an interesting way, and, and maybe you've never heard this either, but this might be an interesting way to communicate um, particle accelerators. You said a trillionth of a second, right? Yeah, Which about – that's what you're able to – you're essentially able to mimic what the universe looked like a trillionth of a second after its formation yeah. inside that's the LHC. About, that's it's, right. The LHC is currently shut down, right? And you're doing um, – well, not you, but renovations are being done. Renov yeah, renovations uh, maybe like isn't the right word. Yeah. Upgrades. Upgrades, yeah. Ren they're moving the furniture around and, yeah, renovations. Um, so, yes, they're upgrading it. What – what um. Will they be able to achieve after that in terms of seconds after the Big Bang? Do you know? Yeah. So um, right now, I don't think there are any uh, concrete plans to make the uh, energy of the collisions higher, which is what you would need to do to go back farther in time. Mm -hmm. um, so in the near term, it's just a matter of, of uh, improving the detectors and, and, and upgrading some of the components. In the little longer term, uh, we're excited about uh, the high luminosity Large Hadron Collider, which just basically means even more collisions per second. Mm -hmm. yeah. So again, that doesn't get you farther back in time, but it gives you a more complete picture of that first trillionth of a second. Yeah. So um, there were way more collisions going on between any given two part, any given particle um, in that trillionth of a second than we will ever be able to observe at the LHC. So if we can have 10 or 100 times more collisions to look at, we can look for things that may have happened in that first trillionth of a second that currently we don't know about. So that's what I would say that upgrade is for. And then beyond that, there's some talk of maybe an energy upgrade to the LHC. Like this is certainly not you know, anything that's for sure yet, but you know, there, there, there are technologies that could maybe double its energy, which would get us closer to the Big Bang. And beyond that, 
Um, there's talk about, you know, trying to marshal the resources it would take to build an even bigger next generation particle accelerator. Um, one thing people talk about is building a new giant ring. In the first stage, we would build, uh, we would accelerate protons, or sorry, electrons and positrons and collide them mm-hmm. uh, and produce a very large number of Higgs bosons. That would be stage one. And then stage two is we'd use the same ring accelerating protons to maybe something like 100 tera electron volts, where right now the LHC is running at 13 tera electron volts, so a substantial step higher. Um, We are far from having the funding we would need to do that experiment, Um, but the hope is that we would be able to uh, put together an international uh, consortium that that could fund something like that. Yeah, that it's a, a you know I'm glad you brought up the the Higgs boson because I wanted to talk to you about it. First off, your TED talk on the Higgs boson is great. Okay. Oh, thanks. It's a fantastic um, introduction to the Higgs boson. I encourage people to go listen. I'll put a link in the wherever you're listening. There should be a link in the description box below. Cool. So turns out that TED talks are really hard to do. Um, are they? Yeah, I had no idea. Um, I give a lot of public lectures and I, I don't think they're hard to do. I just kind of get up and talk yeah. about the slides and, and answer questions and whatever. But the TED talk is super scripted. And, uh, oh, yes, like of I didn't have a, a slide advancer in my hand, like it's mm-hmm. on a clock. So oh, like, really? you know, I've, I've got 17 seconds to talk about this slide and 32 seconds to talk about this slide in, in like, um, they want it to be, you know, perfect so that when it goes up online, you know, there's no, you know, stutters, there are no misspeaking, there's no pauses where there shouldn't be. So like, yeah, it's, it's, it, it was very stressful trying to, to do that. And I think it shows, I, I seem a little, a little off my game in it because I'm, I'm so worried about delivering a good performance that I'm not at ease. I didn't think so. I didn't think so at all. I didn't notice any of that. But no, thank you. It's crazy that they have it on a – hey, TED Talk people, here's an idea. Edit it, you know? <laughs> so try that one in the future um, because that's available to do. That's that's kind of interesting that you have to – is that all TED Talks? Well, I don't know. At least the TED event I spoke at was that way. But mm-hmm. I have no idea um, if that's universal across the whole TED network. I don't know. Yeah, because my way of speaking – my way of public speaking is, is a lot different than most people's. I think most people generate confidence from actually giving a talk in that exact way where they – can make it as scripted as possible and they practice it and they know the exact words they're going to say and when they're going to say them. I am I, I exactly opposite of that. I actually find that the, I get a little bit more confidence in putting re, like not a lot of content on slides and leaving my leaving it up to the spur of the moment sort of comments of mine to be able to get me through the, the talk. And it's weird. It's like I, it's like a, a laziness in present in, in preparing the talk. But it's not because I'm lazy. It's because I actually think I give a better talk that way. Right. I think that I actually am, am better at explaining things if I can sort of read the audience. Because if you generate everything you're going to say ahead of time, then what happens if an interruption occurs and what happens if a question gets asked and you, you, you suddenly you take this, this um, train of thought that you've created for yourself and you've, you've ruined it. Um, so I, I think it's way better to do almost like a, a stand-up comedy style uh, way of of giving a talk, at least for me, that's what works best. Um, so it's good to know that TED talks are like that ahead of time, because um, <laughs> I, I don't know, and that's that's crazy. I do planetarium shows um, where right. where I can't 
yeah, can't script it. I just can't. I have to just go with the flow and and yeah. So that's interesting. Um, I sometimes anyway. script like yeah. the first paragraph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know, that's, no, I agree. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And then then I go, you know, improvise from there. Yeah, but, it's good to sort of get your get started somewhere. Yeah, I tend to do that with questions for interviews, even where like mm-hmm. I, I will have a few questions picked out that I I want to ask, but I almost never ask even ten percent of them. Because yeah. I, I let the I, I use them as a starting point, as a jumping point, and then we just we go. So I th- I think that's a good piece of advice actually for anyone giving talks is to try to get script to the beginning where you know that you're actually going to have some continuity. You know that no one's going to interrupt you and you know that questions aren't going to be asked in like an introduction phase, or at least they shouldn't be. Or else it's not a very good introduction. Um yeah. so so yeah, that, no, that's a great uh, a great piece of advice um you mentioned the higgs boson yeah can can you because people probably aren't going to pause this to listen to your ted talk although they should can you explain what the higgs boson is and and um what was so monumental about its discovery what is it now seven years ago yeah seven years ago 2012 yeah so um the modern version of what what we call quantum mechanics is is called quantum field theory Mm -hmm. and uh it turns out that the sorts of particles that communicate forces through space, so uh, like the photon, for example, is what communicates the electromagnetic force between charged particles. Um, quantum field theory seems to only make sense if those force-carrying particles are massless. Mm-hmm. So the photon is exactly massless, at least uh, to the best of our ability to tell, and our theory says it should be. Similarly, the gluon, which communicates a strong force, strong nuclear force, it's massless. Um, that's what quantum field theory led us to expect. Um, but there's this other force in nature, the weak nuclear force, and it is communicated by heavy particles, the W and Z bosons. Yeah. And this was a big problem. Like uh, that, that shouldn't work. Um, you know, back back in the day, people looked at that and said, um, "Well, that means." that the theory is logically inconsistent. You could, it's what we call non-renormalizable, not gauge invariant. So um, yeah, deeply flawed theory. Um, But then in the 60s, a number of of theoretical physicists, including Peter Higgs, um, but not, he didn't do the whole thing himself, but he was one of the few people most important in this story. Um, They came up with a way to do it where they say, well, there's this other thing called what well, we now call it the Higgs boson. I don't think Peter Higgs called it that. And that Higgs boson fills all of space in a, as a field. And when things like the W and Z bosons travel through that space, it makes them behave like they're heavy, like they're massive. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're fundamentally not allowing us to have a, a what we call a gauge invariant theory, which means a, a workable theory. Um, but that Higgs boson interacts with everything, giving it mass, like the W and the Z. And it turns out the Higgs boson gives mass to a lot of other stuff too. Um, the electron has its mass because of the Higgs boson as do top quarks and the list of particles goes on and on and on. So that was, you know, more than 50 years ago. And most physicists seem to think the Higgs boson probably existed, yeah. uh, but we'd never seen it. And uh, at the Fermilab Tevatron, the particle accelerator that, that predated the Large Hadron Collider, we started to see hints of it, but not enough to call it a discovery. And then the Large Hadron Collider turned on, and within a, just a handful of years, um, they could conclusively say that they were creating and observing Higgs bosons. 
and that was, that was in 2012. Now we've measured many, many different facets of the Higgs boson. We know how it interacts with a bunch of different kinds of matter. We know quite precisely what its mass is and a bunch of other features like that. I, so I, I, a lot of times when I read about the Higgs boson or I talk to people about the Higgs boson, I, I get this um, impression from them that, that, that um, they, they think, and, and in some, in, some, in many ways, because I'm not in the field, I kind of have this impression in my head too, is that Higgs bosons are like finding supernovae and you only find one like every so often. And, um, it's, it's quite rare that you find one out in the universe, but, but, but my, the scientist in me says that the Higgs boson should have some, you know, probability of being produced. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so you should see lots of them. Do you see lots of them at the LHC? You do just because there are a lot of collisions. Right. At the LHC. Exactly. Yeah. So in, in, in supernovae, you, I mean, I guess you can build more powerful telescopes that can observe more of the sky yeah. out to a greater distance. Mm -hmm. And that will, but if you, if you have telescopes that can see any supernova that goes off in the universe, that's all you can do. You can't make more of them, right? Right, exactly. In a particle accelerator, you can always collide more protons or whatever together and make more of whatever you're trying to make. Yeah, so you can detect, you know, many of them. How many collisions are do you do per second? 600 million is the I keep saying, kind of design goal. I see. I keep saying you as if you are the LHC. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, um, I'm, I'm a theorist. They don't let me anywhere near yeah, the actual experimental I know. apparatus. Of course, I don't. I mean, when I say you, I mean the whole field. You, right. You're speaking for the field right now, Dan. <laughs> oh, so, so be careful, okay? Um, what a responsibility. Yes. That's the same responsibility you have when you were on Ancient Aliens. And um, <laughs> oh, I think you... You feel bad, man. <laughs> yeah, you might have let the field down there because... <laughs> it, it will survive. Yes. General relativity was magnificent. Um, spontaneous. Came straight from aliens. Uh, anyhow, so you, uh, you you produce many of these. Not you, again. The LHC produces many of these probably in a in a week, I would think. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so we have a good handle on on producing them, what it takes to produce them, and and how we can detect them. And the detectors are state of the art at the LHC, and it's an incredible process. And if you want to learn more about the process, please check out um, Dan's TED Talk. Go do that. Now, all of these questions we just talked about, the the open questions, which took us an hour and twenty two minutes to get through, but that's fine um, because <laughs> we had a lot of good conversation in in the process. Um, a lot of these questions are interesting and and I want to read a quote from your book because I think that it's an incredible quote and something that I th I think desire or needs a lot of conversation. You you write more and more often these days I find myself wondering whether these problems might represent more than loose ends. Perhaps they are the symptoms of a deeper problem with the lens through which we see our world. Can you elaborate on that quote and what you mean by it? Yeah, so um one of my hobbies is reading about history and in particular the history of science. Yes. And there are lots of examples you can find where scientists were puzzled by something mm -hmm. and they had some different ideas and they did some tests and they figured out which of those ideas was right and they moved on. But then there are other cases where they had some problems that they couldn't solve. They had some ideas and none of those ideas turned out to be right. Instead, something else, something way uh, farther afield and way more different, way more revolutionary than anything that they were thinking about turned out to be the answer. Mm -hmm. So here's, I, I, I like, to, I like to bring this, this, uh, story up. So, um, for a while I was in a habit of asking as many of my colleagues as I could 
Um, what do you think it felt like to be a physicist in 1904? So yeah, you can probably you can probably guess what I why I picked 1904. Yeah, right? yeah, of course. The the 1904 Einstein the year the year before um, Einstein really revolutionized the field. Right. Um, yeah, that's a it's an interesting question. What what would I feel like? Hmm. You know what? So you didn't know anything about what happened yeah. in the 20th century, right? But right. you know, you're you're a physicist of roughly your talents and roughly your outlook in 1904, knowing what physicists in 1904 knew. Would you have any inkling at all that everything you thought you knew about physics was about to be overturned? No, 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 and not at all. And that's a, a you know, it's an excellent uh, point of discussion because, yeah, that is. No, I would have no clue. You know, even le- when you learn about sort of Einstein's formulations in 1905 and then subsequently in 1915, you you honestly ponder, like, how could any person come up with this? You know, in a way, it is miraculous and, and amazing. <laughs> but uh, so, like, for your listeners, like, there were some loose ends in 1904 that could have given somebody pause that maybe yeah. we need some radical change. Mm-hmm. Um so for one thing, the speed of light seemed to be uniform. Yep. And if light were like any other kind of wave, um, it should depend on your frame of reference. So if I'm, you know, in a, in a in looking at ocean waves, and I'm in one frame of reference, the ocean wave is moving at a certain speed. But then I speed up my boat and I go either along with or or uh, into the waves, and now they move at a different speed relative to me. But light didn't do that. We measured the speed of light in a bunch of different frames of references at different times, different places, pointing in different directions, and we always got the same number. Yeah, No one had a good explanation for that. Um, there's the planet Mercury, which had an orbit that was just a slightly different from what the Newtonian laws of physics said it should be. No one had a good explanation. One idea that people, I think, took seriously back then was that there could be some other unknown planet. They called it Vulcan. Uh, maybe hidden on the other side of the sun so we couldn't see it. Um, tugging on Mercury just gently mm-hmm. enough to screw it up. Um, that's not the answer, um, but you know that, that was something people considered. Um, and then there were questions of like, why do certain atoms, uh, types of atoms, when you heat them up, give off light at certain frequencies? We just had no clue about that at all. Um, we, we measured this, but those were just magical numbers that came out of nowhere as far as we could tell. We also didn't understand atoms. Um, everything we knew about atoms said that if you put a charged particle like an electron in orbit around a positively charged particle, those particles should spiral in together and be, you know, they, they shouldn't be stable. It should be totally unstable. So in 1904, I think if you did a survey – Unfortunately, we can't. It wouldn't be great if you could time travel and do that survey. I think you'd find most physicists weren't very worried. They thought these are are the sorts of things that, you know, a little more investigation and it will all just come together. Exactly. Yeah. We've had 200 years that Newtonian physics has just worked. We Mm -hmm. built new things into it. We learned about electricity. We learned about magnetism. We learned about heat. But basically, the whole Newtonian picture was robust, they thought. Yeah. But then a year later, Einstein came up with. General, uh, special relativity and the first papers on quantum mechanics and suddenly all of those things got explained not incrementally but transformatively in, a, in a, um, the yes perhaps the greatest scientific revolution of all time mm-hmm. um so okay bringing it back to 2019 
the reason I like to think about this is I wonder, you know, I look at these loose ends we're facing today, and the matter-antimatter asymmetry, dark matter, dark energy, inflation, and I look at these and I say, could this be the, the, the puzzles that are giving us some insights into what the next scientific revolution is going to be, especially in the field of cosmology? Maybe the early universe played out in super different ways than we're currently thinking about. Maybe different kinds of laws of physics were at, at foot uh, at work. Um, I don't know. Like, even if I were insightful enough in 1904 to know that a revolution was coming, um, I don't think I would have been able to tell you what that revolution would look like. So I'm not going to be so foolish as to tell you what I think uh, any would-be revolution in cosmology might look like. Um, but I think it's worth contemplating that this might be something bigger than a few loose ends. Yeah, no, I agree with you 100%. And um, when I when I read you discussing this, I mean, this is really something to consider because we have seen this before. We've seen it so many times before that it 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 is weird that people aren't on board not weird weird is not the word but it's interesting that people aren't on board with that mind type of mindset today that maybe this is requiring of the next revolution maybe there are things beyond the comprehension of the the tools that we've developed inside of our vacuum you know yeah and and what's more interesting about it is the revolutions they tend to happen the revolutions kind of tend to happen um in in their own little vacuums you know if you think about einstein working relatively alone he had some help from people around him i think his wife in fact um had had helped him propose helped him uh some on some of these things um you know so it's interesting to think that maybe the person who is going to be responsible for overhauling our understanding is is already alive today you know somewhere Sitting somewhere in a classroom, or, or I certainly hope so. Yes, and and um, you know it's where. So one of the interesting things to me about the entire field of cosmology. Did you see the article that was written by? I, I think the 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 name of the the person was Bjorn Ekberg. It was a an article published in Scientific American, and the title of the article was "Cosmology Has Some Big Problems." Did you see this article? It was like published in the summer, I think. And, um, um, I can't say that I did, but I can almost guess what the content of it is. Yeah, yeah. So it 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 brought back it brought um tons of criticism from people like Sean Carroll, people big in the field. And and why don't you guess what the the criticism is? <laughs> and I'll tell you if you're right. Um. So uh, you tell me. You, you, yeah, I, I I may be off, but okay. um, I bet they said we keep looking for dark matter and we're not finding it. Obviously, dark matter doesn't exist, and we should be thinking about mod and stuff. Am I right? Am I warm? Um, you're not. You're not. You're you're warm. Um, okay. But the 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 point is less less. We should be thinking about this other thing, and more. We keep trying to pursue these very particular avenues of inquiry, and they're not working for us. And it seems, at least, this is the the words of the or paraphrasing the words of the the person who wrote the article, is that um. You know, we continue looking at cosmology with this lens that we've fine-tuned in their parameter, in the, in their words. Um, in, we need to take a step back and unravel some of the assumptions we've made if we intend to understand what's happening. Do you think that that, a little bit of that should be done? Do you think we've made some assumptions that 
maybe are detrimental to making steps and progress forward? Or do you think that the person maybe doesn't understand cosmology as much? Because when I talked to Brian Keating, he was familiar with the situation. He said that he's he doesn't think that the person who wrote the article understood as much about cosmology as they think they do. And Sean Carroll had a very similar um, critique. Well, so I haven't read the article and I right. don't know the Naturally. author. So yeah. like it's, I, you know, I can't be too critical. I, exactly. My yeah. very first, you know, you, you know, you, you know, exact you, everything I know about the article I've just heard in this conversation. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. But I tend to agree with Sean and Brian in most regards. And I think this is probably not an exception. Um, I would say this is that there are plenty of individual scientists who have made a bunch of assumptions that they might not even be aware of that, mm -hmm. that, that, that they probably can't see beyond very easily. But as a field, I think just about every assumption that is worth reconsidering has been and is more or less continuously revisited. So somebody might say, well, okay, when you use your equations, the Freeman equations to describe the expansion rate of the universe Built into that is the assumption that the universe is homogeneous and isotropic. Mm -hmm. Like you, you guys are all forgetting that 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 assumption's there, and you should need to revisit that. Well, in fact, if you look at the literature, you can find a very large number of papers that ask the question: Well, what if things weren't homogeneous and isotropic? Can you solve various problems? Blah blah blah. That's good, that's good, that's great to hear, actually, because I haven't heard anyone talk about it from this perspective. Yeah, a lot of people have written papers on that now. It hasn't been super successful. Like it hasn't led to any, any, any. Uh, I mean, probably the the answer is that our universe is awfully close to homogeneous and isotropic, and therefore those assumptions were fine. But there, are, there's a lot of literature on the possibility that that might not be the whole story. Um, there are like, like, like okay, the sort of the sort of things I talk about in my book are well, what if the early universe wasn't radiation dominated like the textbooks all say or at least the textbooks assume um what if it was filled with this stuff instead or what if there were these things what if this happened what if whatever like yeah there are lots of papers that do that um right. now that's not what most cosmologists think of when they picture the early universe on a given tuesday but it's you know something we occasionally think about i mean it's you don't want somebody to forget all of their assumptions all the time right. if they did that they wouldn't be able to think coherently about anything mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think generally speaking, the field of cosmology is pretty healthy in the, the balance it has between, um, you know, taking things for granted or, or, or is adopting assumptions and challenging those assumptions. Yeah. I'll send you the article then too. So yeah, you, okay. can, you can I'm look curious. at it because it is a, you know, it's an, it's an interesting point of contention, um, that seems to be universally disagreed upon by by most cosmologists and for good reason because you know what you just said is an is a, along the lines of every critique i've seen um what's the that, field of the author of the oh uh, a philosophy of science yeah okay so, so you know a lot of my colleagues will say you know negative things about philosophy and philosophy of science i'm not generally speaking one of those i hold the community of philosophers in very high regard in general I sometimes kind of really look up to these folks and really want to be more of a philosopher. Um, but they do sometimes get stuff wrong. I think not, all, you know, not, not the bulk of them, but some of them, especially those who are writing provocative articles in popular science magazines. And um, it wouldn't surprise me if this is an example of that. Mm 
So I, it, but I, I do look forward to the, to the future. You know, one of the more interesting things is that, um, these things tend to come out of nowhere. Yeah. Well, maybe that's not true. Maybe that's true in the case of Einstein because of the type of person he was. He tended to be a, a more private, reclusive type of individual. Um, at least in terms of science, right? Because I don't even know if it was by choice. I think if you read the, the history of, of Einstein, he was, he was alienated from the field because he was like a terrible student. Uh, in his in his formative years and uh, he wasn't a great person to communicate with by all accounts um, until later in his career when when he he was Einstein but when he was just a student you know he wasn't he sounded it sounds to me like he was pretty difficult to interact with even when he was Einstein Um, oh was he yeah see yeah I mean I I I mean I, I I did a thing on on Einstein a few years ago for the teaching company and I did a bunch of reading about his biography and I mean some of the letters he wrote to journals and the way he treated some of his collaborators late in life like mm-hmm. he's very clearly a difficult man to to deal with and you know one who in really insists on getting his way yeah yeah and in he revolutionized an entire field even to this day I mean he, yep. literally to this day we are still proving Einstein right in everything we do. And, you know, one of the more interesting things, the way I look at the his, the way that general relativity sort of fell out is that he didn't look at the, the, the orbit of Mercury and say, there's a problem that I have to solve. You know, he didn't look at, at any particularly, at least not from my understanding of the reading the history of Einstein, he didn't look at any particular, you know, experimental failure that we've noticed with Newtonian mechanics and say, hmm, I gotta, I gotta, reformulate a new way of thinking about gravity um he he came to it by actually ignoring a lot of of well-established science and he thought okay let me think about this from first principles do you think more of that needs to be done first off am i on base with how einstein formulated general relativity um as much as i think i am and secondly do you think more of that needs to be done in, in the field of particle physics and cosmology where we take a step back and we we reformulate ideas from first principles so in the history of science there are a lot of examples where kind of first principle top-down thinking was fruitful mm-hmm. and there are many examples where kind of you know bottom-up phenomenological yeah. thinking yeah that's fruitful. why i say maybe we're biased by looking at einstein yeah yeah i mean einstein was an example where like he took certain principles and from those principles followed them and those happened to be there was enough information that existed at the time that those principles could get him to an answer that you could find out was true. Yeah. Um, that's not usually the case, but it was in that moment with that particular set of ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say when it comes to like his work in quantum mechanics and the photoelectric effect in 1905, that was much more bottom up. He was looking at a real experiment. And he was yeah. trying to find a practical explanation for a real experimental result. And he did. And it meant part of uh, photons came in quanta or particles, photons. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, it can go it can go both ways even with einstein and the history of science certainly has lots of examples of both um and i think any healthy scientific community has a mixture of the two yes um and no, I, you're right yeah yeah i, I, I agree we have that i think we have that cosmologists i mean we have people trying to derive principles of cosmology from string theory and loop quantum gravity mm-hmm. or holography in, in some cases now it's more and more popular and then you have people who are just out there like trying to measure things and you know incrementally uh, improving our, you know, detailed understanding of how these events played out. And, um, 
you know, when those two things meet in the middle, I think it will be pretty exciting. But uh, I wouldn't want to have a, f- a field of cosmology without a healthy dose of both of these approaches. Yes. And that's sort of the, the message of a lot of famous philosophers of science, is that the, there realistically is no uniform scientific method, if you look at history, right? Sure. Um, the, the scientific method is is very non-uniform. And it works in miraculous ways and it works differently for different people at different times and different groups. And so, yeah, no, I agree with you 100% that we, we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't, we should not focus on doing science one particular way. We should instead focus on, on, on doing science. However, we can do science. And there are lots of practical questions. I think I mentioned this before, but you know, if you're sitting on a, on a grant funding panel yeah, and you know, you've got enough money to fund 10 groups and there are 20 groups that want money. Um, you know, you have to make some choices. Exactly. Um, but, um, yeah, I would say trying to have a diversity of approaches is, is, uh, you know, uh, generally uh, something you would aspire to. Yes. hundred percent. I would, um, and b- before I, I let you go, Dan, I like any good interviewer, um, I, w- I would hate not to ask this question to you. So like any good interviewer, I'm doing my research. And I, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll try to look at popular articles of w- popular articles that have been written about your work. Okay. So work that you've done that has then been translated into popular media. And, and you know, the ancient aliens thing is an example of that. But um, there was a, a quote by some of your work that had to do with Dyson spheres <laughs> on, on, on the daily express. I don't know if you know that, uh, media outlet but right. the, i think I they're probably that the i UK. do they're almost like a okay. tabloid in the uk and they write a lot about science um very poorly but they write a lot about science and um they they summarized your work the following and i'm curious to know your thoughts on it dan hooper a scientist at the u.s fermi national accelerator laboratory suggested extra extraterrestrials could store and collect stars through technology known as dyson spheres <laughs> i just picture aliens taking stars and putting them in giant bins and storing them. Of course, I know what a real Dyson sphere is, but this, this um, summarization of your work is hilarious to me. I mean, you know, I, 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 I know what you're thinking, but that's not a bad description of what I wrote. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I mean, sort of, I mean, so the idea was um, imagine you are part of a hyper advanced uh, civilization somewhere. Yeah. And, um, whatever you want to do, you want to do as much of it as you can. Yep. And therefore you want a lot of energy and, and, uh, and things like this mm-hmm. free uh, energy, energy that you can use for computation and other sorts of goals. Well, the universe is expanding in an accelerated rate because of dark energy. And that means stuff that is currently within some traversable distance from you in the future. It won't be right. So like you look out of the sky and you see stars and they all look Mm -hmm. like batteries to you, like just energy, just like sitting there waiting for you to get, grab it. And they're disappearing one after the other. It's Mm -hmm. like if all of our, uh, all of our fossil fuels on earth were just like disappearing unless we grabbed them. Right. So what do you do? We are, they are actually, we're just putting them in the atmosphere. So we're storing them for later use. (laughs) Okay. Let's imagine that, um, all of the, beautiful clean renewables were just disappearing yeah, okay, if we didn't yeah. grab okay so um okay so what do you do in light of this you send probes or whatever out in all directions 
whenever you counter a star that you, you think you could put to good use, you take its energy to and use it to build the Dyson Sphere, and you power that's that you accelerate that star with that Dyson Sphere's energy towards the center of civilization. And pretty soon uh, you, you have a big giant hyper civilization or giant galaxy or cluster that's just full of stars you have hijacked from elsewhere. In the so star. you actually do move the stars. Yeah. Well, Daily Express, you're better than me because I didn't even know that. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I, it's it's a little sci-fi, maybe a lot yeah. sci-fi, but uh, yeah, that's actually what I I'm, wrote. I'm talking trash, and here I am being wrong. Whatever. Yeah, you, you need to apologize to them, man. Yes, I'm very sorry, Daily uh, Daily Express. Um, although I don't apologize because you know that just yesterday they were writing articles about how on Halloween there's going to be an asteroid making a near miss with the Earth, um, and so they and and you know in the headline it says, "Will it hit us?" in all caps. And then in the uh, in the article Ugh. itself, they are very clever as to not actually list the distance that the the <laughs> asteroid will be from us, because if they listed the distance in in you know kilometers or miles in any way that humans could actually perceive it, they would say, well, "I don't know if I classify that as a near miss." Sure, it's a near miss, but is it really a near miss? You know. Um, so yeah, yeah, they they capitalize on on that sort of thing. But hey, yeah, okay, they're right in this instance, and I'm wrong. Whatever. Um, but no, that's that's an interesting thing. I want to ask you one more question, okay? Okay. Because I did this on the last episode, and it turned out to be a a, a hit with people. It turned right. out to to really um, actually help a lot of people who are like, oh, that makes me not feel so bad. We talk about Einstein, you know, and Einstein's famous quote of, of the cosmological constant being the biggest blunder of his career. Nevertheless, he had an incredibly successful career. On the last episode, I asked the last person what their biggest blunder of their career was, and and, and the audience really enjoyed hearing it. What is the biggest blunder of your career, Dan Hooper? What is the okay. one thing that you've done that um, you would consider to be a blunder, but nevertheless you're incredibly successful? Well, Einstein did all right with some blunders. So yes. Um, all right, so I've got one. Um, yes. You know, I haven't I haven't had enough time to really mull this over. So maybe if I molded it over, I'd come up with something else. But this is a blunder anyway. Yeah. Um. So back in the two thousands. Doug Finkbeiner discovered at Harvard discovered this. I think it was at Princeton originally, but he's at Harvard now. Um, he discovered this uh, this pattern in the W map sky. The W maps is satellite looking for the, at the CMB, and uh, we, he called it the W map haze. And it kind of looked like just a big blob of synchrotron radiation from the middle of the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. And I heard about this and. And I got really excited because um, he, he proposed that maybe dark matter particles were making this blob. Yeah. And I was totally on board hook, line, and sinker. He and I wrote a paper together talking about the kinds of models that could do this and whatever, and we were very excited. Um, and then later, um, the Fermi telescope saw the gamma rays that came from the same blob. And mm -hmm. what that told us is that you know what? It, it seems like there are a bunch of electrons, high energy electrons, in this part of the sky. Yeah. And it could could at that point it still could have been uh, dark matter. But what I should have done is thought about what other things it could be and uh, what kind of wild astrophysics could do this because that turned out to be a really big deal. And mm -hmm. in hindsight, it seems like the sort of thing one should have been able to see coming. 
And yet no one did, or at least no one that I know of did. I certainly yeah. didn't think about it. But what Fermi saw later is that the, the blobs that they're looking at have edges, like this, like this, like places where the, the emission starts and stops. In, yeah. You know? And it, it's not one big blob around the Milky Way, but it's kind of two different bubbles north and south of the galactic center. Yep. We call them the Fermi bubbles now. Mm-hmm. And uh, what it means is that some sort of burst-like injection of energy happened from the from the core of the Milky Way some long time ago and created these bubbles. Um, our our Milky Way's uh, center is a lot more exciting and and volatile than maybe we had thought before. But like I said, I think uh, you know, 10 years ago or more, 10 or 15 years ago, one could have figured out that this was a logical possibility instead of just like stumbling upon those edges in the Fermi data and going, yeah. oh, what, what the hell's that? You know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I consider that a blunder. Yeah, fair enough. That's a good one. Okay. Well, that being said, Dan, uh, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up. Please tell people where they can find your book, where they can find you on social media and things of the sort. Sure. Uh, if, you, if you're a, a Twitter sort of person, you, I'm, I'm Dan Hooper Astro. Uh, on Twitter um, and uh, my book at the edge of at the edge of time exploring um, the our universe's uh, first seconds is that what it's yeah yeah that's it yep. I should know the name of my book better but that sounds about right um, that will be coming out officially on November 5th um, it should be in bookstores on Amazon basically all the places yep. and there will be a bunch of links down below for people to, to click great and um yeah so i'm excited about the book people seem to like it um i i hope your listeners will too